this is Jeff Coburn. We welcome you to a Disney at Work podcast. We are glad that you are joining us on this occasion, and we've got some great podcasts lined up for you over the holidays. And when there are other podcasters who may not be doing much, but I assure you that we are going to continue a full schedule of podcasts over the holidays. So if you haven't had a chance already, please make sure you subscribe to our podcast and keep checking because we are going to continue to provide an, a, a great variety of topics uh, connected to the holidays and far beyond as we go through the next couple of weeks. So make sure you stay tuned with us. Part of what makes Disney posts and podcasts so much fun is that we get to play armchair quarterback. In that role, we all have our opinions, strong opinions and otherwise about movies and shows, characters, and of course, the attractions found throughout Disney. But sometimes it's more than differing preferences. Sometimes it's an ongoing pessimistic rant of what is wrong with Disney. In that role, people can sound not too unlike those critics who found Walt Disney himself to be crazy and foolish about ideas he tried to launch. The term for that has always been Disney's folly. And like the judges of old, we find those who really do the same thing today. We're gonna look at five recent Disney attractions that bloggers and podcasters have ranted and criticized at one time or another. And since this is a Disney at Work podcast post, we'll talk about what that looks like when others fail to believe in what you are trying to achieve. Make sure that you also check out our post that goes with this podcast at disneyatwork.com because we'll not only identify these five examples, but we're going to provide you some souvenirs that you can take back to your own organization to say, to ask how you approach assessing things or how others assess you. So make sure you check that out as well. Now, to start off with, before we get much further, let's talk about the role of a critic. My experience working, for instance, with US intelligence customers for several years is that it is one thing to apply critical thinking. In fact, you need critical thinking as a US intelligence agency, but it's another thing to simply be critical. We can all be guilty of it, but we have to make sure we don't become it. That's at the heart of what we're talking about today. We want to, sure, share opinions, give our ideas, but there comes a line that we can draw over that honestly, where we've just simply become critical and demeaning of other individuals or of the projects they're trying to create. Let's go through some examples of this. I think you'll see what I mean as we go through. The first is Pandora, World of Avatar. Recently, I've visited this attraction in a more in-depth way as I've prepared a new interactive experience for our Patreon fans. If you subscribed, you know what I'm talking about. We have this very interactive 
uh, experience where you can really find out about what this land at Disney's Animal Kingdom is all about. I myself have continually been blown away by the levels of detail found in every corner of the world of Avatar. This is an attraction that has truly stuck the landing. And you know it has because it's embraced by millions of people every year. Every day, there are long lines of people waiting to go on its signature attraction, Flight of Passage, and enjoy all the other experiences, Satuli Canteen and so forth, been widely uh, embraced. Admittedly, when I heard the news originally that Disney was going to build an entire, not just a ride or an attraction, but an entire land based on the world of Avatar, I didn't get it either. In fact, I remember I hadn't seen the film and I got the announcement as I was, I think I was somewhere in Missouri with a client um, and it was not a great hotel. It was one of the worst hotels I ever stayed in. But I, I no sooner I checked into my room, I turned on the TV and lo and behold, there was Avatar playing on the screen. And I literally stopped what I was doing to watch this movie. And I was mesmerized by this movie. I was trying to figure it all out. It seemed like a, a very unique, very fantastic world that they had created. But I gotta tell you, I was sitting there going, I do not know how they are gonna pull off people that big in a world that complex. This is, this looks really complicated. I, I just couldn't envision it. And then um, a couple of years later, I remember being at D23 and they had an exhibit in which they brought you in and shared with you the model of the entire land. Still have photos of it and so forth. And I remember listening to it and, and asking questions. I'm not sure the people showing it were just being really tight-lipped about what they wanted to say or not say, or they didn't quite understand either what was really going on about what was happening in this land. Um, and, and people were asking the questions, why spend so much money on a non-Disney intellectual property? Which mind you, years later, is now part of uh, Disney as, as it was a 20th Century Fox film. But, but back then, it wasn't part of Disney. And frankly, no one could even name the characters from the show. So why even care? Yes, yeah, the, uh, many felt that Disney was only doing this because it wanted to align at the time with something that had set so many box office records. And yet, today, millions have visited the attraction, the attractions at Disney's Animal Kingdom and have waited in for hours in line to experience Avatar Flight of Passage. Satuli Canteen is one of the most popular counter service experiences on the entire Walt Disney World property. More films are ahead. It's now under the Disney umbrella. And in my opinion, um, I believe that eventually there'll be more lands like this in other parks worldwide. People love Pandora World of Avatar. There is an expression. If you can dream it, you can do it. To that effect, may I also say, if others can't dream it, 
it doesn't mean you can't do it. Just because they don't envision it, it doesn't mean it can't be done. Few could envision Disneyland in the early 1950s. There just wasn't a template to go off of. Others had done pieces, but no one had ever done what we see today in that in that park. Now we accept it. Now we we see it play out in parks worldwide. But very smart people at one point, the experts in the business of carnivals and, and amusement enterprises once thought it was Disney's folly to open up such an enterprise. And yet, here we are many days, many years, many decades later. So Pandora is my first example. Second one, happily ever after. Now, in this instance, it's not so much about doubting something as it was about hanging on to something you really loved. It was hard to do a follow-up to Wishes. That show was simply loved for so many years by so many. It too was difficult to imagine that anything could take its place, much less do it better than what Wishes did. And yes, there were critics about what would come in its place. Uh, most may not remember that, that there were individuals out there who thought, oh, they're just using castle projections as an excuse for cutting the budget on fireworks. I have to admit, some still miss wishes and perhaps even wish that wishes was coming back. Sorry for the, the double there. But most miss happily ever after in the wake of COVID-19. They can't wait for that show to come back. I watched just this last week being in the Magic Kingdom and nothing more than simple projections and an occasional burst of fireworks as they change from one projection to another and people were thrilled for that. Imagine how thrilled they will be when happily ever after the scene, when it comes back, the scene with the hunchback singing or Hercules singing or the simply the moment when Tinkerbell finally flies at the end. What a brilliant idea. You know, we've always had Tinkerbell kind of start the fireworks. Here Tinkerbell flies in the end and it's like this perfect climax. And I gotta tell you, I get goosebumps just thinking about this show. Now I mentioned this because Disney not only needed time to transition from one major show at Epcot to another, but it needed its audience to transition from one show to another. Illuminations, Reflections of Earth is, was a magnificent show. It had a great showing for some 20 years. But could there be something better than Illuminations. Imagineers think they have it in a harmonious, but they needed a transition piece to get audiences to let go of the past and prepare for the future. And that came in the form of Epcot Forever, um, a tribute. And I, if you're not familiar, you didn't get a chance to see that show in the short time frame it played before COVID set in. I, I have that show on the show notes page. Most thought the show was quaint, 
but no one thought it was better than Illuminations. And frankly, they're quite right about that. But are they still ready for Harmonious? That show, which should have premiered by now if there had been a pandemic, and probably would have been highly accepted by now, has been delayed because of COVID-19. Now it's underway, and the first barge appeared in World Showcase Lagoon over the last week or so. Immediately, the size of this barge drew criticism. Do people not remember how disappointingly small the fountains and the globe were? I mean, you could sit on one end of the World Showcase Lagoon and see that globe coming out into the middle, and it just, it, it was cool what they did, but it wasn't impressive. I am thrilled that these barges are huge and even more grateful that there will be daytime fountains as I find an empty World Showcase Lagoon to be boring. You want, you want that aesthetic, you want that, 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 that movement and those fountains will help provide for that. I think great days are ahead for Harmonious. Again, we just have to wait and see what it looks like. But I wouldn't judge it. And you may come away saying, ah, yeah, it's okay, but it's it's not Illuminations. I have a feeling it's going to be better than Illuminations. If I had told you that Wishes was going, or that Happily Ever After was going to be better than Wishes, you would have all kind of question marked me. And I think we need to just give them the benefit of the doubt that they may be trying to pull something truly remarkable. You have to understand, Epcot has a lot of room for guests to come in and flow in. And they could do a lot in terms of occupancy in this park. It's the one, it's usually the last one booked in terms of reservations each day. And that's partly because there is no fireworks show at the end of the day to attract people. But imagine what it'll be like when those fireworks have come back and they come back in a major way that everybody not only wants to see Harmonious, they want to keep coming back to Harmonious. I think that lies ahead. And I think even though the new barges seem overwhelmingly large or the whole concept seems different, give it a chance because you just may find out that Harmonious is just is to what Illuminations is uh, is to Illuminations what um, Happily Ever After has become to Wishes. So that's number two, Happily Ever After and Harmonious. Here's number three, the Skyliner. Many people dismissed this ride system long before it was open. The biggest concern, and I heard this voice many, many times because I listened to other podcasters and I heard this again and again express. Oh, I don't know about this. What about the potential temperature inside the cabins during the summer? It's going to be too hot. It's going to be too terrible. It went on and on and on. And I have to say that I myself was wondering, how are they going to make this work as well? That is, until I was in Singapore two summers ago, before it opened at Disney, and saw that same make and model of 
Skyliner working there in conditions that were far more hot and humid. I don't know if you've been to Singapore, but let me tell you, they know hot and humid in a way that Orlando has yet to invent. I took the courage to go try the Skyliner, and I've got video on the post. You ought to see it. Um, and this this took courage on my part, uh, let me tell you, because the height isn't very tall on the Skyliners at, um, at Walt Disney World, but they are huge on on the island of Sentosa. Sentosa is kind of a, a vacationing type. Well, it's a resort island like Disney World is, and it's got Universal Singapore and so forth. And any rate, I got on this, on this, in the middle of the day, and I didn't feel anything in terms of heat and humidity. It felt cool, it felt comfortable, it wasn't rocking, it was just an enjoyable ride. And for someone scared of heights, I was appreciative of how calming the effect was riding. Well, since then, uh, let me just tell you, Skyliner is now so popular. People love the Skyliner. And um, it just reminds me, if you go back, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs had at one point run out of funding and they needed Bank of America to infuse some cash into the project to get them to the finish line. There's a story told about Walt inviting a banker over to the studio one, um, this is the old Hyperion Studios, and he invited him over one um, uh, weekend uh, to watch what he could scrap together of the movie. It wasn't close to finishing, but he kind of pulled every piece that he had, um, showed story reels where he couldn't and so forth. That the guy, the guy just watched. He just watched the whole thing. And then as he left, he said nothing. And he started heading back to his car. And finally he's getting into the car. Walt said, so, so what do you think about this movie? Very nervous, Walt. And the banker just turned to him and said, that is going to make you a boatload of money. And he was right. It made $8 million, which when tickets were only 10, uh, 15 to 20 cents, depending on child or adult, that was a remarkable amount of money to make on on an animation, full-length animated film, which, again, the critics were also complaining, oh, nobody's going to sit through it. It's going to be too color, too much color. They're going to have to tone it out and so forth. I mean, there were skeptics all the way through Snow White and Seven Dwarfs, and now we have a classic. 50 years later, 70 years later, 80 years later, <laughs> we have a classic. Sometimes you have to give people a little bit more vision of what is possible to help them get to the finish line. Just like that banker needed a little vision, I needed a little vision of what the Skyliner could do. Now, the Skyliner is the darling of the resort circuit. Interest in staying at the hotels served by the Skyliner have risen simply because people want to take advantage of the service. You go to Disney's Hollywood Studios, you can go to Epcot, it's fantastic. And while it's had its breakdown moments, especially up front, it has largely been faithful in its service and fairly efficient in moving a large number of guests. Again, one of those Disney World follies, but the Skyliner is now beloved. Number four, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. There have been a lot of naysayers about this Star Wars endeavor. 
The films have endured some tough criticism, and perhaps some of that is justified or earned. Less is deserved is less deserved is Disney's effort to build two massive expansions at the same time on two coasts. And by the way, before I go any further on that, let me say this about that. Do you remember the attractions that came out between 2000 and 2004 and 2012? I mean, between, um, there was just this entire decade practically that we barely had any new Disney attractions come out in any of the parks. It was, it was just pathetic. It was the end of that, um, uh, that period of Michael Eisner and the transition over to, it just, there wasn't a lot going on in Disney parks and attractions. And I, I cannot tell you how thrilled I have been the last couple of years to see so many new attractions announced and even built. Um, and, and no project has been more uh, has been more enormous than than the effort to build two massive expansions at the same time on two coasts. Star Wars Galaxy's Edge was the biggest expansion for both Disneyland and Disney's Hollywood Studios. For both of those parks, they were huge. And during this effort, there were many critics bashing them from afar. There has been no end to the criticism. And in fact, some that criticism, criticism has continued to the present. Not enough Star Wars. Not enough room at the cantina. Not the characters people are familiar with from the Star Wars movies. Not enough droids that are roaming about. Not enough people coming to visit it at Disneyland. Not much different than Star Tours when you ride Smuggler's Run. Not a very rewritable attraction as a simulator ride. Not a place anybody really knows about Batu. Not enough shade. Not a menu anyone can understand. Not worth opening the land without Rise of the Resistance and not worth opening Rise of the Resistance unless it works perfectly. In fact, in the latter, I've heard that complaint. Don't open that ride if it's not working. Well, people are still complaining today that Rise breaks down too often. And that is true. I have been in the queue a couple of times over the last couple of months and have been there when that attraction has broken down. It is a disappointing moment, especially to people who were lucky enough barely to even get a virtual boarding pass to begin with. And there are some who think it should close until the attraction is running perfectly and then reopen it. Well, that is true. There are too many breakdowns of the attraction, but people forget that when Pirates of the Caribbean originally opened, it had a lot of down days. It went it went down on many occasions, or maybe people have forgotten that when Abraham Lincoln 
opened up with great moments with Mr. Lincoln at the New York World's Fair. They were delayed in getting that attraction open because Lincoln was not working as a brand new audio animatronic. And the first months of Epcot, all those rides and attractions you just assume would work, like World of Motion and the Universe of Energy and Journey into Imagination, which came actually a little after the first months of Epcot. But anyway, all those attractions, they all had huge downtimes. And in fact, they were in those first months, they were handing out hundreds of refunds and complimentary tickets uh, to guests who were coming through and disappointed that it wasn't as it wasn't running as perfectly as the Magic Kingdom. But eventually they all performed the way they were intended to. And to that end, so will Rise of the Resistance. It has it still has it's the most complicated attraction that's ever been built. Um, but it's, it's, it will come along and it will come to a day where you'll, it'll be a long time between downtimes, but that takes time to get those, those tweaks and get those places right. You know, sometimes it will never be enough to your critics, um, but it will be enough to the fans and customers that matter most. I saw that yesterday as I was visiting Rise of the Resistance and I was near a family of five visiting up from somewhere in the Carolinas. There was a mother, father, there were uh, two girls about five, I would say about five and seven, then a little boy who was about 11, maybe 12. A little boy had glasses, kind of a nerdy looking little kid, but, but cute kid. And, and, um, and they all got into the shuttle that uh, is going to, you know, take you into space. And uh, and they were right by the door, you know, and they position you because of COVID in this little kind of um, uh, area here. And you could see them all looking around to see what was going on. This was, I'm just pretty certain this was their very first time ever riding this attraction. And you could see their curiosity. And then when the doors opened and uh, they boarded the ship and to have you go out, that dad turned around and could see the stormtroopers out in, in, the, uh, the, in the bay of the Star Destroyer. And he's like telling his kids. And then the guy boards the ship and you can almost see the dad almost being defensive and kind of protecting his, his boy. I just watched this family as they went through the rest of the queue and ultimately came out on the other side of this attraction. They were having a time of their life and not, no sooner had they gotten off the attraction, they pulled up that data pad, which I myself haven't quite figured out. Um, he wanted to do a podcast on it, but I gotta tell you, there's a lot of, of uh, stuff to figure out on it. Anyway, they pulled out that data pad and they were scanning uh, more devices on it, and they were totally immersed in the Star Wars uh, experience. It was it was magical, um, even emotional, as I watched them. Uh, emotional was also the moment when we went on the first day it opened at Walt Disney World. It opened at the studios before it opened at Disneyland. And I had the good fortune of bringing it a, a team of professionals, IT professionals who were 
on a uh, benchmarking visit to learn more about how to improve their organization. And I just happened to be their day at the studios was the day when it opened up. And I said, okay, we can do this. Can't guarantee we're going to go on, but we'll try it. And we did end up going on it. And about 1030 in the morning as we came off the exit, you could see um, Scott Trowbridge, who is uh, the head of the entire Star Wars portfolio for Imagineering. He was there at the exit observing all the guests and I turned to Scott and I said I said thank you thank you for having faith in this attraction because there had been many naysayers who were saying they they can't get this rise to work it's not going to work they're gonna and I remember one really crazy podcast that already began a conversation of could they turn this land over to something Aladdin themed or something like that? It was, it was just the stupidest podcast I'd ever heard. Because why would you? You barely got out of the gate. Let believe in something. I mean, isn't that what Disney's all about? Is believing in something and and having faith in something? You know, that's what it's all about. And to just criticize it. At any rate, I, you couldn't have seen a more proud father than Scott Trowbridge the day that that attraction opened, and uh, and it continues to thrill guests who come through and visit um, the parks. Well, I've mentioned so far, I've mentioned Pandora, the world of Avatar, Happily Ever After, and Harmonious, the Skyliner, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. I want to talk about number five which is Disney reopening their parks after the pandemic or in light of the pandemic. Some have, and um, again, I haven't used names in this and I'm not trying to shoot a bullet across or shoot, a, shoot something across the bow of the ship, but some have dismissed CEO Bob Chapek as simply, quote, not getting it. And in fact, they've really said some very negative things about um, well, the man's bald, but um, that shouldn't matter for anything. Um, and and they've said they've made some some allusions to to him being a bad guy and not getting it and so forth. And I'm looking at this company right now, and so far, what I see, and I, I'm not here to defend Chapek, and I have said some things I'm concerned about. I've talked about the lack of diversity at the executive level. Although recently I've seen a couple of really good signs of things to come. But so far, what I see is that Chapek is having to do some hard things that have never been done since Walt and Roy were struggling with the Depression. That's, that's how, if not harder, this has been a very difficult time for any company and especially for a company like the Walt Disney Company, which is so dependent on theaters and attractions where people go as a public to visit and and and, and it's something that can't be done during this pandemic. Um, Walt and Roy had a tough in the depression, but again, rather than letting the dream die, the Disney brothers undertook even harder things and the result, again, was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. When things are hardest is sometimes the moment that you have to believe and work harder. 
I feel Disney is doing its best to do harder things even during hard times. One of the reasons I decided it was time to do this post and podcast now was watching the amazing conclusion last night to the season's Mandalorian. What an amazing show. I'm not giving away anything if you haven't seen it, but you really, after this podcast is over, you need to go watch that show and you need to watch the whole series if you haven't watched it. What an amazing product offering they have in Disney+. Plus. And what amazing future it has. And my kudos to really Bob Iger in this case, because he saw the vision of doing Disney Plus in the same way Amazon or Netflix was going in and doing this and Apple and others were doing it. Um, but uh, when, you, when you end up calling people names, what you've really done is expose your ability uh, as being unable to make your case on the grounds of data and reason. And let me just say, there's some good data as to what Disney is doing right. First off, they announced a couple of weeks ago that there are some 88 million subscribers to Disney+. Plus. That is an astonishing number that have embraced something in only a year. At that same day, on um, Disney reached an all-time single share high of $175.72. The all-time high in the middle of the pandemic. And it came in the wake of the Investor Day announcements uh, that came on that occasion. Now, we've chronicled many of those announcements. There seemed to be over 100. In fact, I think that's what Bob had said. There were over 100 new shows that were discussed on that and we showcase on our podcast and post many dealing with Star Wars, many dealing with Marvel. I just they um, Pixar, of course, Disney, of course, across the gamut. It was astonishing, and the result was an all-time um, high in shares. Um, it was a stunning set of announcements, and yet none of it, by the way. And this spent four and a half hours. I, the only reason I spent four and a half hours, I figured with that amount of time, they're eventually going to talk about the parks and other things I, I really have an interest in as well. But no, none of it had to do with te network television or retail and even especially the parks. Imagine what they could do by the time they hold the stockholder meeting in March 9th, 9th because they could be doing a whole bunch of announcements then. And it's all the more reason why I think there might be some openings coming to Walt Disney World before that moment. But at any rate, that's an aside. That's a rabbit hole. What I'm trying to say is that meanwhile in the parks, Disney is doing all it can do to reopen every park around the globe. And it's had some very difficult government forces, much less uh, just the issues of this very scary pandemic going on. Um, prior to this pandemic, they had a stunning list of projects and attractions coming to this park. I had never seen such a huge portfolio of construction activity. I believe that they are doing their best. Hey, I'm, I, I want Mary Poppins to come. I want to see um, the um, Wonders of Life building transformed. I want to see all these things that they're doing. Um, 
it may take longer to get them there, but I believe that they are trying as best they can to keep many of those projects alive and to keep you and I coming again and again. Therefore, I say, while there is a time and a place to say, is this working? And to be a little bit, to utilize a little bit of critical thought, it's also time to stop being so critical. In summary, like the stock market, I'm bullish for Disney. Not that I don't have some critical concerns, many of which I've voiced on these podcasts, but offering critical thought and simply being a critical person, I believe are two different matters. And when it comes to Disney, the latter has usually been on the wrong side of Disney. If what I have mentioned are Disney's follies, then bring on more of them. I'll be the first in line when they open up. Now, every Disney at Play podcast that we do has what we refer to as souvenirs for your organization. Ideas that you can take back and consider in your life, in your organization, your work, your business, whatever. Think about these questions here. Are we thinking critically or are we simply being critical? Do you need to face the reality that people will complain until they experience what you have in mind for them? Is it difficult for your audience to lay aside the familiar and embrace the new? We've talked about that in terms of wishes and, and uh, illuminations. When people dismiss you, stereotype you, label you, is that a sign that they don't have a case against you? And how can you do harder things in harder times? Those are my thoughts. That's what Disney at work is all about. And we're glad that you could join us. I hope that if you haven't already, please do us a favor and subscribe to this podcast. Please share it with others. If you have a chance to write a positive note, we welcome you going to iTunes and giving us a, a positive rating or a positive review. That helps spread the word about our show. Our show is the little engine that could, and we are just trying like Casey Jr. to, to gather as many people on board and, uh, and to head out. We also appreciate those who have joined our Patreon group Please, if you haven't had a chance to look at this, check it out. I mentioned some of the things we've done with uh, Avatar. There's an interactive app there. and We have some exclusive videos and podcasts coming. But also, we have, for those who sign up for the Disney at Work um, levels, we have Disney at Work interactive apps. Right now, we are visiting Disneyland, the happiest place on earth and you get to go into different places around the park and see best in business practices for your organization. You definitely want to check this out and you could do so when you visit our Disney at Work and Play Patreon group. Again, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your being a part. As we say in every podcast, in the words of Sinbad's storybook voyage from Tokyo Disney Sea. Always follow the compass of your heart. Wherever you go, take care. We'll see you 
real soon.